Oh, we are talking about viral verses, those verses that uh, get uh, posted and liked and shared and tweeted and retweeted along the way. Uh, they're, they're verses that are oftentimes accompanied by uh, good-looking pictures behind them or graphics that help them just to pop and stand out along the way. And what we've kind of discovered is that sometimes the verses that go most viral are shared, but not always in a good context. And sometimes what they seem to mean is people push them out, and what they mean uh, as they're in the Scripture is sometimes slightly, sometimes even radically different along the way. So we've been trying to look at some of those verses, and we've had a couple of kind of core truths, core convictions as we've examined these verses in the series. The first is that we have no right. Uh, to hold God responsible for a promise we have misunderstood. No matter how sincerely we, we want it to be true or even believe it to be true, if it's not His promise or if we've taken it or twisted it or misunderstood it, we have no right to try to hold God responsible for that. The flip side of that is the more positive one, and that is that in Christ Jesus, we really can rely on all the promises of God when they're properly understood and applied. That in Jesus Christ, all the promises of God are yes. They find their yes in Jesus Christ as we properly understand them and properly apply them to our lives. And so that's what we've been trying to, to do a little bit during this series. But this morning is going to be just a little bit different because while we're going to look at some verses uh, in 1 Corinthians 10, what brings us here is not so much that these particular verses uh, are high on the list of verses that get posted and shared and liked and tweeted along the way, but it's a phrase that some have kind of adopted and used that have grown out of these verses. And I get the phrase. I understand it. It's probably one that you've heard and maybe even shared along the way. It's usually one that's given as a word of encouragement, a word of hope, a word to help build somebody up, particularly in a trying time. And the phrase goes something like this, God will never give you anything more than you can handle. God will never give you anything more than you can handle. But the question is, is that true? Now, sometimes when somebody shared that, it depends on the situation. Sometimes if they say something like that, I'll kind of give a joking response and say, well, if that's true, I wish God didn't trust me so much, right? I wish he wouldn't have such confidence in me that he gives me all these things. Sometimes if it's kind of a sensitive moment, you can tell somebody's kind of saying that out of some pain and hurt. I just kind of try to redirect them to some of the promises in God's Word. But sometimes the situation is right, and, and I may just press into that a little bit, and I may say, well, I've read the Bible quite a few times. I don't remember reading that. Where did you find that? Where does that come from? And, of course, at that point, sometimes some panic sets up in, in somebody's face. is like, oh, no, I've been doing it wrong. And we kind of stumble around and usually find their way back to some reference to 1 Corinthians 10 that we're going to look at in a moment. But before we dive into that, I wanted to ask just the question, because Paul is the human author of 1 Corinthians, uh, 
Did he really believe that? I mean, did Paul really think that God wouldn't give him personally any more than he could handle? And I would suggest to you from his writings, he did not believe that. Look what he wrote to the Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter 1. For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. And he experienced lots of affliction as you read through Acts and his letters. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength, beyond our strength, that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt we had received the sentence of death. But, here's the key, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. I'll say, we, we were in these situations, and it was beyond my strength. In fact, there were times I got to the point of, of despairing of life itself. But what that taught me was not to rely solely on myself, but upon God, whose power was enough to even raise the dead. And that became so, so ingrained in Paul that he would, he would write about this thorn in the flesh. Now he had pleaded for God to remove it. And God's answer was, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, Paul said, I'm going to boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses that I can't handle it all on my own so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Paul said, what these afflictions taught me and reminded me is that I am dependent upon God, that I was not designed to do life independently from God. Yes, sometimes God allows things in my life that are beyond my strength and capacity in my human flesh, but that is to teach me, to point me to my reliance upon Him. And if that's the way Paul felt, then where do we come up with the idea that God will never give us anything more than we can handle? And the implication is by ourselves or in our own strength. I think it arises out of a, a misunderstanding of this passage in 1 Corinthians 10. So I want us to kind of look at this and make sure we're looking at it in context. In the, in the letter to the Corinthians, he covers a lot of things. Some of them were some particular issues they had in the life of their fellowship. He talked about uh, use and misuse and abuse of freedom in chapters 8 and 9. And then he comes to chapter 10. And in chapter 10, he begins to talk about the danger of overconfidence. The danger of, of being kind of over confidence, trusting in your own strength, your own capacity, maybe thinking you, you're beyond some of these things. And he, he lifts up the, the Hebrew nation. He uses there in the first few verses of chapter 10, the, the Hebrew nation. And what he says to the, the folks in Corinth, he says, listen, despite all of their advantages, Despite all of the blessings that they had, I mean, God brought them out of Egypt, the cloud was with them, and all of those things that he details, the Hebrew nation walked in serious sin against a holy God. 
He said, that is to be instructive. And he goes on to kind of catalog some of those sins. He talks about idolatry in verse 7. Uh, these things that they set up as gods. And maybe we don't have a wooden uh, or a god, but, but sometimes we have things we, we love more, we trust more, we value more than we do the living God. He talked about idolatry almost always eventually leads to sexual immorality. And you can see that in a culture that when we replace the one true God, God with other gods, sexual immorality in all of its various forms inevitably follows in a culture. And then he talked about they tested and they tried God. They grumbled against God. All of these things, and he could have cataloged so many more, but these are examples of despite their advantages, they sinned, they rebelled against a holy God. Now, why is he writing to the people in Corinth? Gentile background, many of them, about the Hebrew nation. Well, he does it to make application. And his application is threefold. The first is, he says, they are an example. They are an example. Look at verse 11. He says, now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. These things happen, and God said they're instructive, but they were recorded. They were written down. He's now reminding them of them. He said, I want you to learn the lesson. One of the hallmarks of maturity is we get to the point of realizing none of us is going to live long enough to make all the mistakes, right? And so we need to learn from other people. We need to learn from good examples good models, but we also need to learn from the mistakes, the failures, the shortcomings of other people, those who have gone before us. He said, these things are written down so that you can learn, so that you can be instructed through their example. Even though they had all of these blessings and benefits, they still rebelled against a holy God. And with that example goes a warning. A warning. Verse 12. Therefore, in light of this example, therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. Pay attention here, Corinthians. Pay attention, Fort Mill. Pay attention, Jeff. Be aware. Even if you think, I got this. Even if you think, my strength is sufficient. Even if you think that would never happen to me, take heed. Take heed lest you fall. And then he gives them a promise. A promise for these moments that perhaps overconfidence would seep in. A promise for those moments when we begin to understand the warning and the example is real. And I want you to notice a few things about this promise. The first is the basic meaning of the word temptation is to test or prove. Let's look at the promise, verse 13. No temptation. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, he... He will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. The temptation is, at its root is about to test or to prove. 
And so when the scripture uses temptation, it can be an opportunity for proof of righteousness or it can be an inducement to evil. It depends upon our response. So that Jesus is, is in the wilderness, right? He's led by the Spirit, the Scripture says, into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Uh, but this becomes proof of righteousness because of his response to the test. It, it proved his heart. It proved uh, where his love was, where his allegiance was, where, where his life was centered. It became proof of righteousness as he entered into this test. This test proved his righteousness. Now, temptation can serve as an inducement to evil, depending upon how we respond to it in the moment. Uh, but, it, but in many respects, the, the, the the, test, the temptation can just be a test that can prove righteousness. And the scripture goes on to remind us, don't anybody say, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil. And he himself tempts no one. There will never be an inducement to evil from God. God may allow into our lives those circumstances that test, that prove, that have an opportunity to prove of righteousness or an inducement to evil. But in the midst of those situations that come to us all, he says, remember, they're common to man. They're common to man. The temptation is part of the human experience. It's part of every one of our lives in this sin-scarred world. And sometimes we don't like that because we like to think, well, my situation was different. Well, my circumstances are unique. You don't understand. This, 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 this all kind of conspired, and I didn't have a choice. But I think the statement is true that one author wrote. He said, circumstances may differ, but the basic temptations remain the same. Circumstances differ. Technology changes. Opportunities may be more readily prevalent in this environment than that environment. Circumstances may differ, but the temptations remain the same. Now, this is hugely important because sometimes in rationalization, sometimes in justification, we say, I, I just couldn't because... Because of this person, because of this circumstance, because of this pressure, whatever it may be. But to come back to say, no, I am not going to experience anything in my life that is not common to humankind. That the same inducements to evil that I experience are going to be the same that people have been dealing with for centuries. The details may differ but the temptations remain the same. Now, when I come to grips with that, it begins to push aside a whole lot of my excuses, rationalizations, and justifications along the way. The third part of this promise is that God is faithful. That God is faithful. That God has said, he is not going to let us experience any test that we're not able to meet. But here, the key last phrase, with his strength. With his strength, as he said, but with the temptation, he, 
he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. He will provide the strength. He will provide uh, the, the capacity. He'll provide whatever it takes for you to be able to go through it so that it becomes not an inducement to evil, but a proof of righteousness, that he will be faithful. Not that you can handle it in your own strength, but with his strength that he will meet you in the moment. And that's the testimony of Scripture. We're encouraged to remember we don't face it alone, but we face it with a God who is faithful. So in Hebrews we find, because, speaking of Christ, he himself has suffered when tempted. He is able to help. That's huge. He is able to help those who are being tempted. Every one of us, that we have the availability of help. He goes, all the author of Hebrews says, since we have a great high priest, as he's talking about that, that functioning role of Jesus as our great high priest, he's passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. He gets it. He gets it. He understands what you've been through. He understands where you're at and what you're going through. He understands, yet without sin. And because of that, let us then, with confidence, draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. God is faithful. God is faithful that he will not allow this thing to come into our life that is so overpowering that we're not able to meet it and respond to it well with his strength. We may have to cry out for help. We may have to access some of the resources he provides, but with his strength, we are able to endure it. We're able to go the way of escape, the way to pass through it, to be able to endure it so that it becomes not inducement to evil, but proof of righteousness. So if God is faithful in the midst of these things, and they're all common to man, my situation's not so unique, so different, that somebody hasn't experienced it somewhere in the history of humanity, and I am certainly vulnerable, how do I live? How do I live in light of this promise? Well, let me suggest some thoughts to you. I've taught on some of these before. We talked about some of these uh, when we looked at the life of Joseph and even how he handled some temptation. But let me walk back through these because I think they are relevant here uh, for uh, this promise. And the first is we've already talked about. Just realize. Just realize your vulnerability, right? That we all have to come to the truth of verse 12. If anyone thinks he stands, take heed lest he fall. And there have been countless examples through history of folks who said, I would never do that. I would never stumble there. That's not going to be an issue for me. And they have. W.G.T. Shedd was a systematic theologian from Uh, a 19th century he said sin is the suicidal action of the human will against itself 
And what in the world does that mean, right? right. Well, if, if perhaps in our terminology, to very simplified, he said, when you commit a sin, it makes it that much easier to do it or another sin again in the future. And it makes it harder to avoid. That sometimes we fool ourselves and we think, I don't do these biggies, but this isn't such a big deal. Nobody notices. Nobody's hurt. It's just a few minutes. Just curious. Other folks have done it. Not going to hurt. And maybe we don't experience an immediate consequence in the moment. But it's almost like a, a corrosive acid. And it begins to weaken our will. Sometimes we see somebody's had this like major explosion, right? And we say, how could that happen? It didn't happen in a moment. It happened in a series of little moments. Those suicidal actions against the human will that began to corrode the strength. And eventually there was the big snap, but it was set up by all those little moments along the way. Realizing my vulnerability is not just about the big things out there, but it's about the cumulative effect of the little things that I deal with every single day. And so I realize my vulnerability. I realize that obedience today sets up obedience to tomorrow. Disobedience today sets up disobedience and destruction tomorrow. Realize your vulnerability. Secondly, refuse to be intimidated. And sometimes when we talk about this, it's like, you know, we all kind of feel like, oh my goodness, I'm going to go home and pull down the, the shades, right? And not go out and not watch anything or talk to anybody or anything else. That's not how he called us to live. Refuse to be intimidated because yes, we live in a world where some of that stuff is very real, where there are temptations common to man, but God is faithful. John put it this way, little children, you are from God and have overcome them, for he who is in you is greater than he that is in the world. And so, yes, you respect the reality of sin, respect the destructive power of sin, but don't let that so dictate your life that you forget who you are. We were just singing a little bit ago about uh, who we are and who he says uh, that we are, and to remember that, to remember greater is he that is in me. In my own strength, I'm very, very vulnerable. But God is faithful. And greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world. And so I'm going to be aware. I'm going to have a healthy respect, a healthy fear, if you will. But I am going to refuse to be intimidated. But not only that, uh, as I think about it, I can, based on these promises, request God's help. And just request God's help. So when I, I find myself in that moment, I call out to God. And, and I think it, it, we build that on a platform as I consistently spend time in God's presence, in the Word, in prayer, and through those, those other means. And then in a moment, in a moment of crisis, in a moment of testing, I can cry out to God. And we come back to what we just read in Hebrews 4. Let us then with confidence, with confidence, not in our own merit, uh, but in the, the, the grace of God. Draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. And so sometimes it's just a flash prayer in the moment. 
I think it works best built on a lifetime of walking with God and a, and a pattern of, of, of setting yourself before God and his word. Uh, but to call out to him, God, I need your help. You have said you are faithful. I, I, I need your help in this moment because I don't want to rely just on me. I want to rely on you. Request his help and then resubmit your life to God. Resubmit your life to God. This is where it always begins. And James said, submit yourselves therefore to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Now, now let me try to explain how maybe this happens sometimes for us. Sometimes when we're facing something or we're struggling with something, it bothers us. It bothers us because we feel guilty. It bothers us because we're afraid of, of the consequences of it. And this bothers us, and so sometimes we'll say, I want to resist the enemy here. God, I want your help here. And that's legitimate to do. But then there are these other areas of my life where it's not bothering me. I'm not submitted to God, but right now it's not really bothering me. I'm not, I'm not troubled by guilt. I'm not seeing any, any consequences that I'm experiencing. And, and so I kind of want to say, God, I'm good here. I'll go ahead and keep handling this in my own way, in my own strength. And very often what God says to us in the moment is, this is not a cafeteria. You don't come and say, I want to be submitted to you here because it's making me feel guilty. It's bringing unwanted consequences in my life, but please keep your hands off the rest of my life. No, I have to come with every area of my life. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. In all those areas. And then he gives me the capacity to resist the devil. And then the promise is he'll flee. But if I want to continue to operate with unsubmitted areas, but then say, God, help me in this area because I feel guilty, I feel bad, the consequences are painful. He may not meet us there until he, we allow him to deal with all of those other areas of our life. You resubmit your life to God. Fifth, recognize your patterns of temptation and be prepared for it. Recognize your patterns of temptation and be prepared for it. Jesus said to watch and pray. To watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Here's the reality. There are temptations that are common to man. But not all of us experience the same temptations to the same degree and the same intensity. Because we all have stories we all have uh, things that have made us who we are. We have things from our family of origin. We have things from our life experiences. Uh, we, we have things that have hurt us and wounded us, things that we have walked into, some patterns of, of the flesh that we have kind of allowed to take root in our lives. And that's why there's never room to be judgmental. Uh, because what, what might be a struggle for you might not be a struggle for me. Uh, well, it might be a struggle for the person next to you. You may say, well, I don't, I don't really have much of a struggle with that. And sometimes we can feel maybe even a little superior. Well, I don't struggle with that. Yeah. We're different. We have different patterns, right? And, and we all have things that, that are going to be greater points of intense struggle for us. 
because of who we are, how we're wired, family of origin, all of those other things, the patterns and habits that were set up even before we became a follower of Christ, the people who have influenced us along the way. And so I need to be aware of that. Where are those areas where I tend to be most vulnerable? Where are the patterns that some stuff starts to show up? And we've taught for a number of years. It's not unique to us, but I think it's very good. It's just sometimes it's even helpful to remember HALT, H-A-L-T. Sometimes when you think of these four letters, they remind us of those four areas where sometimes my susceptibility, my pattern, begins to increase for an inducement of evil. The H is for hungry. That I'm hungry. You know, there's a reason the Snickers made the commercial, right? Yeah, you know, here, have a Snickers, you know. You're not, you're not yourself when you're hungry. Why? Because when we experience hunger, whether that's a physical hunger for food, whether that's an emotional hunger or a hunger for affirmation or whatever it may be, when we have these hungers in our life, uh, hunger just to, for, for someone to, to, to know me and to love me and to value me, we have these hungers in our life. Sometimes they set us up to be much more susceptible. Much more susceptible. The A is for angry. For angry. There there are times when you you just sense that anger swelling up in you. And and the anger in and of itself may not necessarily be sin, but how I respond to it oftentimes is. And it, it can be so destructive to myself and to others. And so just to be aware, hey, what what tends to be the pattern? When I get angry, right? The L is for lonely. Lonely, that there are times where we can sometimes stumble into things when we're alone that we would never do with other people. There are things that you would look at on a screen that you would never look at if there were two other people beside you looking at the same screen at the same time. There are things that somebody does on a business trip when they've been away for a few days that they would have never done had their family been with them. When we feel lonely, when we feel isolated, when we feel disconnected, very often that makes us more susceptible. So we just have to be aware. What is that a pattern? Does that look like for me? The T is for tired. When I'm tired. When I'm physically tired, when I'm mentally tired, when I'm emotionally tired, when my tanks are kind of bottoming out, That's oftentimes a time when I am most susceptible to an inducement to evil. So I just have to be aware of those. I don't know what your unique patterns are. They're they're common to man on the one hand, but there's also some variety to it within the, the span of human experience. Where are your patterns And how can you be prepared for it? How can you rely on the the promises and provision of God? Sixth, refocus your attention on truth. To refocus your attention on truth. Sin is always about a lie. The enemy is always about a lie. He's a father of lies. Uh, Whenever he speaks his native language, it's lies. He, He is always about taking truth and twisting it just enough along the way. He did it in the Garden of Eden. He's been doing it ever since along the way. And the way that you combat the temptation, which is based on a lie, is to refocus your attention on truth. And one of the first truths I would encourage you to refocus on is what sin really is. I love the way Jerry Bridges writes. He says, see sin for what it is and for what it stands for. It's a rebellion against God. 
a breaking of his law, a despising of his authority, and a grieving of his heart. That's where the mortification of sin actually begins, with a right understanding of sin. See, in our culture, we, we, we can almost think, eh, it's not that big a deal. I mean, wink, wink. In fact, is one of the greatest ways to make sin more acceptable is to get us to laugh about it, right? Just look at situations on TV. Look at comedies. Look at how much behavior has been slipped into our consciousness and has increasingly just become acceptable because we first started to laugh at it. Kind of brought down the defenses along the way. But if I begin to see sin, it's not like God's this grandfather in the sky who's just wink-winking, doesn't really care what you do. But to understand, sin is so destructive. It destroys people. It dishonors God. It blows up families. It crumbles cultures. It, it destroys nations. Understand, it is, it is rebellion. It's this cosmic high treason against the authority of God, against the love of God. It's not just breaking a rule, but it's breaking the heart of a loving Father who loves you more than anyone will ever love you. And when you begin to see sin rightly, when you begin to see the truth about sin, it helps you as you refocus on that truth. But Jesus demonstrated for us one of the best ways to refocus on truth, and that's just to bring back the Word of God. So as he had these inducements to evil there in the wilderness, he answered the half-truths and the lies and the twists and the distortions with the Word of God. Again, it is written. Again, it is written. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. One of the greatest ways uh, to, to walk in God's strength is to take God's Word. Meditate upon it. Memorize it. Keep it on a card in front of you. Post it somewhere where you'll see it. Down, put it on your phone where you can pull it up regularly. Particularly if you begin to identify these patterns. And you say, here's an area where the battle is hottest. Here, here's, a, here's where the struggle's intense. Then what does God's word have to say about some of those particular areas? How can I refocus on truth when the enemy whispers lies? Refocus your attention on truth because God is faithful. He'll meet you in that moment. Three more. Remove yourself from the situation. Sometimes God's provision is just to get up and get out of there, right? So flee youthful passions, pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. We just come to that realization, God, I, this is not the environment I need to be in. These are not the people I need to associate with. I need to be somewhere else. I need to just remove myself from this situation. I need to step away from this influence. may not be forever, but it's certainly going to be for this season. I remove myself from the situation. Sometimes God's provision is a door. Just walk out the door. Just be somewhere else. Connect with another group. Or just get away. Flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace. Eight, reveal your struggle to a godly friend or support group. This can be so, 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 so powerful. Paul wrote to the Galatians, Brothers, if anyone 
is called in any transgression. You who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. But keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. And then we, we recognize that, that, that very often sin, temptation, the enemy, they, they thrive in darkness. And there is incredible power, sometimes they're just hauling something out into the light. Just calling it what it is. And I don't say you do this with hundreds of people, but with, with a trusted brother or sister in Christ. Maybe with just a small group, you're doing life together, just to say, hey, would you pray for me in this? Can I just tell you where I'm at right now? And that's scary, and that's frightening, and the enemy will whisper to you, don't do it. They'll, they'll condemn you. They'll think bad of you. They'll, they'll tell other people, or all of these things, because he knows. He knows that the bad stuff thrives in the darkness. And when you bring it out into the light, it begins to lose its power. It begins to lose its death grip on you. There is something incredibly freeing about just opening up to another person and maybe just recognizing this is something that's common to man and recognizing that you don't have to do it alone. Reveal your struggle to a godly friend or support group. And then, just to bring it full circle, rely on God's faithfulness. Just going to rely on God's faithfulness. That His promise is true. No temptation. <laughs> it's not going to overtake you. It's not common to man. God is faithful. And He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, He, He will meet you in that moment. He will provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. He can move through it. I love the, the writings of, of uh, Paul Tripp. He puts these two thoughts together. He says, biblical faith lives at the intersection of shocking honesty and glorious hope. Shocking honesty and glorious hope. Shocking honesty. Let no one think that he is above temptation. Don't let anybody think that he stands beyond it lest he fall. Or in my words, I am one step away from stupid, right? Shocking honesty, right? Let's just, let's just be real about that. No matter how long you've been a follower of Christ, no matter how much you know of the Bible, no matter what your giftedness, no matter what your income level, shocking honesty, we're all capable of stupid. Sometimes we get there one little step at a time. But glorious hope that no temptation, <laughs> whatever you're dealing with, no temptation has overtaken you, except it's common to man. And God is faithful. He will meet you in the midst of it. And He, with His strength, will provide you the way of escape that you may be able to endure, that you may be able to move through it so that it becomes, in the end, not an inducement to evil, but a proof of righteousness. Just trying to bring this together. So I thought about this even in my own life. I thought, you know, so much 
of sinful choice, of sinful behavior, has at its root a doubt. I doubt God's love. I doubt God's goodness. I doubt God's wisdom. And I think that maybe he's holding out, or maybe I'm missing out, or maybe it's not as bad as he said, or maybe my way would be a shortcut and be a better way. I doubt God's wisdom, his love, his goodness. The first thing that the enemy sought to whisper in the Garden of Eden, and he's still whispering it today. I read of a young mother. The zoo in their area had just opened up a, a, a new kind of exhibit. It called it Big Cat Country. And Big Cat Country was kind of had the lions and tigers and these other things kind of in a, in a natural habitat area. And what they had designed were kind of like these bridges that you would walk over Big Cat Country and you could kind of look down and, and see the, 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 the big cats there in kind of a more uh, natural environment there. And so this group of moms thought that they would take their young kids to see Big Cat Country. And as they were having a great day, they were making it away, and one mom had her two little boys with her, and, and uh, they were all together with a group, and the mom behind her got a stroller stru- stuck, and uh, was kind of struck between a couple slats, and so she ran back to kind of help her get the stroller unstuck and popped it out and turned, and her boys were gone. And she looked, and they were ahead on the bridge, but they had found this little opening, It was too small for an adult to get through, but it was just big enough for two little boys to squeeze through. And the two boys had popped through that little opening, and now they were standing on the very edge of the rocks, right above these big cats, just saying, Mommy, look, we can see them. Of course, Mom could see them too, right? And her instinct was just to scream. But she was fearful because they were right on the edge that a scream might startle them and cause them to tumble in. And so she ran just as quickly as she could up to the little thing and she knew that she couldn't get through herself. And so she just dropped to her knees and she held out her arms. said, come give me a hug. The two little boys turned for the rock back through the little opening and embraced the hug of their mother. And as I read that story, I thought that's that's really how you battle sin. And it's not some preacher up here screaming, right? But it's turning and recognizing the goodness and the wisdom and the love of your God for you. And seeing those outstretched arms on the cross that invite you to turn from lesser things, turn from things that steal, kill, and destroy, and come into the embrace of the one who loves you, the one whose guidance will always be best, the one who always has goodness as the driving of his life.
And he invites you to come to him. And you will experience that he is faithful. And that's a promise that you and I can cling to. Let's go to him together in prayer, please. Father, how we thank you that somewhere along the way, you burst our pride. And you remind us, Lord, that it's not that we can handle it all by ourselves, but that we are connected to the one who is more than sufficient for all these things. And so, Father, how we just give you thanks right now in this moment, because you know You know us better than we know ourselves. You know the uniqueness of our life. You know the the areas where temptation is strong, where there's that inducement of evil. But, Father, that you can transform it into proof of righteousness. And so, Father, I, I just ask, Lord, would you just even in these next few moments just remind us of who we are and whose we are? Lord, would you help us to recognize that when you direct us, it's always a direction from a heart of love. It's always from perfect wisdom. It's always from goodness. Lord, would you help us to turn from lesser things and turn fully and completely to you. Father, thank you that no temptation is going to come to us this week that is not common to man. But you are faithful in the midst of it. And with that moment of testing, you will provide everything we need to move through it. I'm just going to invite you just to be still in the presence of the Father for just a moment or two more.